0: And here's where we're going today in this psalm, thinking about what it means to complain to God about your enemies, to affirm that judgment is certain, and to joyfully shelter in that reality. Now, are you the type of person that likes to complain? Are you the kind of person who just loves the opportunity to complain if you're in a restaurant, if your steak is medium rare, not rare? Or are you the kind of person that... uh, Shies away from complaining, Irish people tend to not do their complaining to the person they want to complain to. they complain to anybody else and everybody else rather than that person <laughs> so everything 's fine when you 're talking to us Irish people and then we do our complaining elsewhere, partly in wanting to avoid conflict, but that 's a little bit of our culture. Some people uh, really love complaining, and if you try to complain in any kind of provider now you can't get real people on the phone can you you have to type in some little bot on the bottom right of of the website who might be helpful with their cut and pasted answers or not but God is the ultimate complaints department and we are encouraged to bring our complaint to him that's what is happening here in this psalm a complaint is being lodged by King David in verse one. He says, hear me, O God, as I voice my complaints. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. So King David is the one with the complaint here, but of course it's different to how we usually use the word complaint. He's not upset with the service God is giving him. It's not that he's been given a faulty product or per customer service by by God. Rather, he's coming to God recognizing God is the ultimate service provider and the only one who can help me with this need. He's coming to God knowing that he can rely on God and he's making his voice heard to God. He says, hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint. Listen up, I need you to hear me on this one. This is a serious issue that I'm being confronted with. And you see quickly that the complaint is actually a plea for protection. Protect my life, his life is threatened. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. So his life is in danger and a wicked, noisy crowd of evildoers, of enemies want to take him out. And so he turns to God and prays for this protection. Hide me, he says, verse two, from the conspiracy of the wicked from that noisy crowd of evildoers. Now even if you're not at all devout or convinced about God, a crisis, a threat, tends to cause you to pray. And that is a good gut response. It's a bit like a spiritual doorbell ringing in your psyche telling you that there's a limit to your own power and to your own resources. And you need to take your complaint up the chain of responsibility to that divine source. It's like saying, I want to speak to the manager because you're not getting the answer you need, but only in an ultimate divine sense. And in this context, the threat needs to go right up to the top chain because it's, it's, his life is in question and it's more than some kind of personal falling out or a desire for a, a fresher government to come and resolve the, the housing crisis. Fundamentally, it was an ideological and spiritual opposition David was facing from dangerous, life-threatening enemies. And that was because David was God's reigning representative. And not unlike today, a lot of people wanted nothing got to do with God or any of his representatives, because they didn't want to be under God's rule, but rather wanted to rule things their own way. And therefore, they were willing to kill to get rid of everything that got to do with God and his representatives. And so they wanted to get rid of David in order to get rid of God. They saw God as an unwanted obstacle, and the way to remove that obstacle was to take out the king. And that is the context in which David finds himself and makes his complaint to God about his enemies. Now perhaps you or the people around you feel something of that in our culture today where obviously the setting is different, but anything with even a flavor of Christianity is often seen as needing full and immediate forceful opposition. And if you find yourself with a combative response to the Bible, to Jesus, or to Christianity, or to Christians. You have to ask, well, what's driving that kind of gut response? What's at work there? And perhaps a little bit more time with us, a little bit more time around the Bible, we might be able to help you get more to the bottom of some of that reaction, see things differently. But in this instance, these guys are not listening. They are a noisy crowd, threatening. They're evil in their intent and they are determined to take out David. And so he voices his complaint. He says to God, hear me, that's his first response. He doesn't voice his complaint to his army generals or to those in charge of all of his uh, military might. Rather, it's natural for him to cry out to God, to say it out out loud to God, and to ask him first and foremost for protection. He doesn't seem to feel that God will be used or resent a request like that. God welcomes that. And God sees the enemy too, who's expecting them. And when we go forward into the New Testament, and we think of how Jesus interacts with this kind of theme. He warns us that when we make friends with him, by definition, we will make enemies of the norms around us, that that is an, an inevitable reality. It might not be life-threatening in our context in Ireland, but you can become very heated. So don't delay in bringing those concerns to God. If you're on the receiving end of opposition, make your complaint, make it for yourself, and make it for the church in other countries that experience this deeply. And ask God for protection. These global guides from the Church in Chains have just been published, the fourth edition. I've left a number of them here on the two little tables there. This will enable you to do that in an informed way, to cry out to God for protection um, from the enemy. Then moving on to how you respond yourself, and I think that a big section of this psalm is around affirming certain judgment. Affirming certain judgment. Now if you uh, go onto YouTube and you type in instant karma, any of you done that? Debbie's nodding, I think you've done it. (laughs) Instant karma, right? It doesn't mean in in the religious sense, but it's about, look at this idiot doing this idiotic thing. Now look at them getting what they deserve. Hooray, great, roll on the next one. And there's loads of them. Thousands of them on TikTok, everywhere you go, instant karma, people love them. There's best of instant karmas as well. There's just, there's thousands of them out there. And why are they so popular? It's because we we actually like when people get what they deserve as we perceive it. We especially like when it's instant. That's why those those threads are so popular. And when you think about that, why is it that our immediate reaction to the concept of God's judgment is often negative, when in practice we actually really quite like the idea of people getting justice? We welcome that. And when you hear about policemen in England, part of the official system of policing, realizing that 800 of their own officers are being investigated for abuse of women, and some admitting to serial rape, I don't think we object to justice coming down the line. We say, well, well, I want want that now. You can't get away with that stuff. And it shouldn't. So we actually like justice, and that's good. That's a good human thing, because it comes from how God judges. And in practice, that is a good thing. But often it's not instant. And justice can be very slow. And that new global guide of what's happening around the world, often we're not seeing that immediate reaction to justice. How do we then interact with that? And how do we pray about that in the meantime? And that's where this theme of affirming certain judgment is so profoundly helpful. That's what David is doing in this middle section. He doesn't pretend that these guys are not threatening. He outlines that, but he goes on to affirm the reality of coming judgment. He says, verse three, they sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent man. They shoot at him suddenly without fear. So they're very well positioned, dangerous, and they're using words as weapons. You see that? They sharpen their tongues and they aim their words like deadly arrows. Words as weapons. Now that's never out of the news. Jeremy Clarkson's gotten himself in all sorts of trouble for what he said about Meghan Markle. And rightfully so, he's totally out of order, what he said. Whether you like Meghan Markle or not. You shouldn't be saying things like that in print. He went on to apologize, but in this psalm there's no apology. The intent is to actually kill. as the purpose of it. Now, we become highly attuned to the use of words and language, and the potential for language to translate into violence and hatred. And that type of issue has saturated social media platforms, and it's constantly creating real, impactful events on the ground. Polarizing views fueled by words as weapons to massive political and social Effect it can cause real harm. It can cause evil change, and the intent here is for evil. And more personally, the, the ways in which you use our words at the moment can be incredibly difficult for you in your workplaces. Think of how the words you used are scrutinized at the moment. And some of that is very good and right and appropriate and necessary. Some of it is quite insidious. So if someone in your workplace says, well, you're a Christian. I am going to report you for being homophobic. I'm going to report you for being bigoted. Well, that could be the end of your job. If you have actually been like that, well, maybe it should be the end of your job. There's no excuse for bigotry. We are called to love our neighbor. But the word Christian and being a Christian does not by definition mean that you're homophobic or intolerant or bigoted. And that's where language, words, can be weaponized. Words have power, power to inflict great pain. Now where we have ourselves use words carelessly and being perceived as such, we need to be quick to repent of that and make sure we're listening wisely where we've been the cause. We ought to expect unfair opposition ourselves and opposition with evil intent. We see this right through the scriptures. It's developed through the Bible and the target broadens out to all who seek Jesus. And the enemies we are confronted with include human opposition, but over and above that is spiritual opposition, chiefly satanic opposition. That's what Blessing was reading for us from First Peter. To expect that reality. And in Ephesians 6, we read of the flaming arrows of the evil one. We have a cunning, proactive, and well-armed enemy dug into position in this world against all that is life-giving, targeting, and seeking destruction incessantly. The opposition is organized, brazen, arrogant, and cunning. As we see in verse 5, they encourage each other in their evil plans. They, They talk about hiding their snares. They say, who'll see them? They plot injustice and say, we've devised the perfect plan. Surely the mind and heart of man are cunning. You might be asking, well, how's that affirming certain judgment? There's no sign of judgment yet. It comes very quickly in verse seven. But God, but God will shoot them with arrows. Suddenly they will be struck down. He will turn their own tongues against them, and bring them to ruin. All who see them will shake their heads in scorn. The psalm very suddenly changes tone. God heard it. He returns fire. He has heard the plea. The enemy is weak and exposed, actually. And David is affirming certain judgment. God is aiming straight at them, and he doesn't miss. Their judgment is certain and total. He shoots them with arrows. Suddenly, they're struck down. And he uses their own weapons against them. He reverses that. He turns their own tongues against them, brings them to ruin. He turns all that they had used to oppose David against them. Their arrogant talk ceases. They're ruined in an instant, not instant karma, but instant divine judgment and justice. Their arrogant enemies are now ruined and scorned by the people who look on. You see in the end of verse eight, all who see them, these enemies, shake their heads in scorn because they've been completely undone. And so what David is doing is from his position of weakness and threat He affirms the certainty of judgment. His circumstances haven't changed at this point, but he's framing what what is happening in the present in what he knows to be certain in the future in order to enable him to navigate the present threat and reality. And he has said this time and again. Through the Psalms you read this theme occurring time and again. It has happened in David's life. He has seen it, he looks back on it. He's written about it plenty of times where evil comes full circle and inevitably shoots itself in the foot. It always comes back on their own head. And so he affirms that to be true. He affirms that certain judgment has happened before. Certain judgment will happen again in this instance. He's so certain, in fact, that it's as if it's already happened. So where do we see this certain judgment? Where where do we go to find this kind of reversal? Where do we see uh, Satan shooting himself in the foot? Where is the instant reality in our experience? Why is Putin still pummeling Ukraine with rockets, death, and savagery? Not exactly like for like, of course, but where do we see this reversal in that kind of instance? Well, I know from church planters and friends on the ground in Ukraine, that they're telling me that their church planting plans have been brought forward by about 20 years through the war. That they have examples time and again of people coming to Jesus, despite the mayhem that is happening. And because of it, Satan working for destruction, Evil men working for destruction. And what do you find? People coming to faith and life in Christ. More and more people then are crying out to God for protection and hope and for defeat of their oppressive enemy. That's happening now. What is meant for evil is used time and again in the scriptures for good. Evil will be accounted for and is not justified, but is beaten and beaten using its own Weaponry and arsenal. David had seen it before and he trusts it will be the case again. But while the intervention of God may be sudden, it's not always immediate. And in this psalm, David is in that in-between space, in that often threatening meantime that we find ourselves in. And in that space, he affirms certain judgment, but he hasn't seen it in full yet. He's seen it in the past. He knows that trek Track record means future judgment is sure, but it hasn't come yet. And so in the meantime, he affirms its certainty. And he sets out a principle and theme that reaches fulfillment ultimately in Jesus. Because it's in the King Jesus that supremely in his death on the cross, we see certain judgment affirmed and realized. Throughout Jesus' life and in his, th- his trial. His enemies used words, weaponized against him. They said he was a blasphemer, said he was a threat. They questioned his birth. They said he was a blasphemer, a threat to society, a liar, a usurper, a nobody, a false person. And witnesses were brought against him. Together with his own friend Judas, they came up with a plan to kill him, and better still, to get the Romans to do it for them. When you read verses 3 to 6 in that light, it brings the psalm into a whole new meaning. Where you see how they encourage each other in their evil plans. How they say we've devised a perfect plan. And their minds and hearts are cunning. And as he hung on the cross, those who saw him, what did they do? Well, they shook their heads in scorn. Like you find at the end of verse 8. They shook their heads and they said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let him come down now from the cross if God is with him. His enemies thought they had devised a perfect plan to get rid of Jesus. They handed him over to be crucified without fear and they congratulated themselves for their own cunning. Perfect. It was evil at its worst. Evil appearing most powerful. Satan seeming to have dealt the final ultimate blow but with the cross like an arrow piercing through the heart of Christ. What they didn't realize at that time was that Jesus was taking the place of the evildoer, the wicked. This was Jesus under certain judgment, in the place of his enemies, in the place of our enemy status, as we too sought to push him out of our lives. And the cross enables God to end evil without ending us which is a line I stole from Keller. Very helpful way to put things, isn't it? This diabolical cunning plan was in fact the very means of God's victory. The evil was self-defeating. Jesus' death was the death of death. In truth, the cross was the arrow. The cross was the arrow that took down Satan, death, sin and all the enemies of good, they were triumphed over by the cross and therein we find liberty. That evil conning plan that ambushed the innocent Jesus had in fact been decided beforehand by God to strike the killer blow to the enemy and make all things new. All those who shook their heads in scorn have since met the risen victorious, living, ruling and conquering King Jesus and seen the reality of that reversal through his wounded hands and feet, a trophy of his turning the enemy's weaponry against them. His certain judgment brings liberty and forgiveness to even his enemies and defeats evil. This psalm calls us to affirm certain judgment now That means we don't despair when it looks like the enemy is unbreakable and justice will never come. When doubts creep in, when fears surface, when opposition gets loud, we affirm certain judgment, looking back on what God has done, anticipating what he will do. God turns things around. He brings blessings to his people even through hardship and he will bring all to account. So remind yourself that the cross of Christ brought the certain judgment to change enemies to friends and the risen Jesus will preside over final judgment that will leave no stone unturned and no unrepentant enemy will go unaccounted for. And to affirm certain judgment is to come to Jesus in repentance if you have not yet done that. Acknowledge he died in your place and enjoy his grace and favor. And that is the same call to all of us every day and as we gather around the Lord's Supper here this morning. The certain judgment of Jesus takes all the guesswork out. Our life now and forever is truly protected from the threats of the enemy of sin, Satan and death. And no plot, no plan, no cunning can ever undo that. And so we joyfully shelter in that certainty. Have you ever complained, and then found yourself being compensated generously? You have. What happened, Alina? We were delayed eight hours in Italy, and we complained to Ryanair, and we got some money back. So you got money back from Ryanair. Well, that's always a good news day, isn't it? (laughs) And did you tell, a miracle. Wow. We believe in miracles here too. <laughs> and did you tell people about that? I only to Anna and Mickey and they were not, they, were the same flag, but they did not get compensated. Oh, well, well. <laughs> well, if you've had the experience of being generously compensated, whatever it may have been, I think you tend to tell people about that. Because providers want you to respond to the good that they have done for you because they're not interested in you, really. They're interested in their reputation. And they want the positive experience to be the last thing people hear about, not the complaint. Now, we've seen that this isn't a typical complaint in that sense, but it doesn't end with David keeping things to himself. The result of this certain judgment has a profound effect on all. Verse nine, all mankind will fear. They will proclaim the works of God and ponder what he has done. God's justice proves to be a thing of awe. It causes people to think deeply, to talk about it to others, to think about what has occurred in this judgment. They proclaim God's works. They they ponder what he has done. In David's time, that was seen time and again as God delivered him and the people from the surrounding enemies but the center point for that biblically is the cross think of the centurion at the foot of the cross saw how jesus died and showcased that when he said surely this was the son of god he all struck by what he saw it caused him to ponder it caused him to proclaim something of this judgment and here we are talking about the cross today celebrating that in the lord's supper together pondering it and holding these truths forth as the most awe-inspiring, fearful reality ever seen. And the works of God in Christ have been the talk and wonder of people from every country in this world. The rejoicing and the praise is not limited to any one culture. All people, even those who once were among the persecutors, are now among those who proclaim fearfully and ponder on what he has done. We have a great, just God to proclaim. He brings good and right justice, the justice we all want at heart. The final reckoning has not yet come, but we have reason now to rejoice in the Lord. Jesus took our judgment. We shelter in that refuge that 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 brings. And though it may appear as if nothing has changed on the ground in the everyday, we take refuge under enemy fire even now Because we know that the cunning and well positioned and powerful enemy will come undone. So in the here and now we can experience the joy and praise of that. Let the righteous, verse 10, rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart praise him. Things haven't yet changed for David as he says that. The joy and praise does not depend upon immediate resolution, therefore, but on trust. Trust Trusting God, trusting that he sees, trusting that he will bring judgment to bear, and sheltering in that reality now. God's got it, he hears your complaint, he sees what you see, he gives refuge now in Christ, presently, even in the presence of enemies. Justice will come and it will be universally applauded. Take refuge in Christ. Take heart and shelter in that certainty. Let's pray. Lord, may we proclaim your works, ponder what you have done, rejoice in you, take refuge in you, and praise you. Thank you for the victory you give us over the enemy of sin, Satan, and death. Give us boldness as we face the enemies of your purposes in our everyday and strengthen our resolve.